Welcome to the Dispatch Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Isger, joined by Jonah Goldberg, David French, and Chris Steyerwalt. We've got a lot of fun topics today. Uh, we're going to start with January 6th, six months later. Uh, Jonah's got some thoughts on the Republican Party's, well, messaging. We'll then dive into some 2024, how the GOP primary is shaping up with a not just elephant in the room, like a mastodon in the room in the form of Donald Trump. And we'll end up with what the New York City Board of Elections debacle means for election security efforts, et cetera, moving forward. Let's dive right in. David, it's six months later. What are, where are we? Yeah, so um, I would recommend, I've got a recommendation, we can put it in the show notes, but the New York Times did a comprehensive visual investigation of how Trump supporters took the U.S. Capitol. You can see it on YouTube, and it, it literally walks you through step by step by step what occurred on January 6th. And seeing it again with the cameras on the ground, the sort of the cell phone cameras from the Trump supporters, the news cameras... It's really remarkable how, and we knew all this, we saw it, how violent it was. It's remarkable how so much of appeared to be actually rather meticulously planned by some of the individuals involved. It's, it's a shocking thing to see. But where I am, where I live in, in very red Tennessee, uh, my, I did that New York Times bubble calculator where you put in your address and it sort of tells you what your neighborhood is like. My neighborhood is 85% Republican. Um, I don't ever hear about January 6th. Nobody talks about January 6th. Uh, and there are interesting reactions when I bring it up. Um, but I want to start with Chris, our uh, it just, you know, welcome, Chris, uh, upgrade from Steve and, and <laughs> appreciate, appreciate you en enhancing the pod today. Um, so, you know, you, you talk to a lot of folks, you talk to a lot of politicians, you talk to a lot of people in the political establishment on the GOP side. What is the behind closed doors assessment of January 6th? Cause the out front assessment of January 6th is essentially move on, nothing really to see here. Is there in is that is that what's also happening in the in the quieter conversations? Well, I, I first of all think that as lucky uh, as I am to be with you today, Steve Hayes is in Wisconsin eating bratwurst. So maybe <laughs> it's I don't know. I don't want to say better. That's a value judgment. Um, <laughs> uh, look, uh, the. There are there are twin concerns for the closet normals. Uh, there are twin concerns. So I think here what we're talking about are McConnellite or normal mainstream Republicans from the old from from Jan olden days who still make up a plurality probably of the Republican Party. And if you're in the House of Representatives, if you're Kevin Brady, if you're we could think of a bunch of guys and gals like this. How do you perceive this? So you have the danger on the one side which are the Democrats. But the real danger here is the uh, nationalist right, because 
the reason they can't talk about it or don't want to talk about it isn't this the stated reason. There's some truth in the stated reason. And as we look at Kevin McCarthy wrestling with the question of this January 6th commission, um, to put members on, to not put members on, if you put members on, do you put jack wagons like Matt Gates and whomever on there to uh, grandstand and, and turn the whole thing into a farce, right? Which would be the, the textbook House Republican play. Uh, but, but if you do that, is that a good idea? The, the problem is, if you were to be sober-sided and serious about these things, the blowback that you're going to get from the nationalist right, from the Tucker Carlson fan base, from all of this stuff is so intense because they no one cares about January 6th more than the deniers, the creeps, the weirdos, and the freaks. They are the most intent on this because it is so delegitimizing for them that they care about it the most. So I think that's the 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 reason they want to make like a hole in the water is because they cannot ruffle up that 20% or so of the Republican Party that is just, you know, lit. So, Sarah, does January 6th have any continuing political salience? Um, now, we know, we know that on the GOP side, and again, I mean, if you bring it up to folks around here, there's either a combination of sort of a pained look, which is like, do we have to talk about that? Is that something that we need to talk about? Or kind of angry, like this is, don't exaggerate what happened there. That was, you know, don't even talk about that in the same, you know, don't bring that up unless you're going to bring up the riots in the cities. And so there's this either sort of pained this, we don't want to talk about this because that's not really who we are. And bringing this up is like bringing up a bad memory. We need to move on, move on, move on. Um, but does that isolate Republicans from the rest of America? Or is this just something that is going to be in everybody's rearview mirror? It's going to be a historical moment that just doesn't have continuing political salience. For the two bases, both on the left and the right, it will have some political salience. But frankly, I think those bases that I'm, uh, that I'm here talking about are very, very small. 2022 will be won or lost on crime, immigration, maybe some education, you know, critical race theory stuff sort of on the periphery. January 6th will not be the issue that wins or loses those, you know, the House of Representatives for the Republicans, for instance. Um, I think you're right that when you have candidates talking to their most ardent bases, it could be in that stump speech. But, you know, that's not even a turnout issue at that point. That's just rallying the faithful. Um, so, no, I think that, um, you know, you'll have the commission in the House. I think that will only exacerbate the movie oniness of the whole thing, actually. <laughs> uh, the only part that won't are the ongoing prosecutions. You uh, will have trials starting at some point. Some of those will have fireworks. Not many of them. A lot of them will plead out. A lot of them will be pretty staid affairs as criminal trials actually tend to be despite uh, the movies. But given how many we're talking about, I think it's likely that you have one or two where you have sort of a, what was that, a Columbo moment? What, what like 1970s show, you know, where you have this massive like thing happen on the stand? 
uh, just the odds are that something like that happens. You know, if that happens in October of 2022, could that have some salience? Sure, I don't want to say that it won't. But at this point, crime and immigration, man. And obviously the economy and jobs. Like that's a that's a known, 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 known uh, to honor the late Secretary Rumsfeld. Um, but yeah, no, this will not be in the top 10 issues. All right, so Jonah, putting on, can you be a predictive historian? Does that work? Um, putting, <laughs> putting on... You're, if you had to look, if you're, if you're going to be looking back on this event, say five, five years from now, is your best bet that what happened on January 6th will be seen in hindsight as the peak of a particular kind of fever that sort of slowly broke over time? Or is it a harbinger? Will it have been seen as sort of a harbinger of increased political violence still to come? Um, is this something that was that's the warning bell in the night saying this is how polarized and and angry we are and this was um, this and this is going to be the thing that should have w- awakened us but didn't or is this the thing that uh, Republicans are going to look back on in embarrassment and move away from and try to and sort of slowly move towards normality. And I guess this might segue into your <laughs> topic yeah. a little bit. Well, also, this is a good way of phrasing the question because it 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 segues into my 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 basic agreement with Sarah, with one exception. But before I get to that, just for the record and for the sake of of clarity, and to avoid a riot in the comments sections, um, <laughs> the TV show that would regularly feature a uh, huge revelation on the stand would be Perry Mason, which was not quite the 1970s. Uh, it was um, 60s. Uh, 60s. And I mean, there's a, I mean, it happened in other things, Ironside. There was, of Matt course, Locke. the Brady, Matlock, and there's, of course, the Brady Bunch where Mike Brady throws his briefcase down on the floor and proves the guy doesn't, in fact, have whiplash. So, I mean, <laughs> it, 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 it's happened in, in other episodes. The 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 stunning revelations in TV shows that in Columbo typically happen in someone's living room, where Columbo would say, "Oh, that's it, great. Oh, just one more thing," and then get the person to admit that in fact they had killed hundreds of people and ate their livers or whatever it was. So, um, be that as it may, um, I think Sarah is absolutely right. If one is making a, ge- ge- a generally straight line prediction about where we are. To where and the 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 trajectory of where we're heading. The problem, the only thing, the only caveat I'd have, which I'm sure Sarah would agree with to some extent, is events, dear boy. Right? I mean, things can happen, and if the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers and these other knobs kill somebody, or if Trump incites them again, which some of his statements lately kind of sound like he is. Um, all of a sudden, dots that are current, you know, right now for a lot of people on the right who don't want to talk about, and not even on the right, just a lot of normal Americans don't want to talk about January 6th, it's one dot. But like in geometry, if you have two dots, you can then draw a line between them. And if you have a couple more dots, and those dots are significant and scary, then all of a sudden it could be disastrous for 
for Republicans, I think. I mean, people forget how adept and I thought fairly dishonest and cynical Bill Clinton was at pinning Oklahoma City on Rush Limbaugh and Republicans generally back then. I don't think I don't think Biden has the chops and the environment is so different now, but Trump supporters could help. Right. And they could they could help by like doing more of this kind of thing. And if they do more of this kind of thing, then I think it will really it could really change the zeitgeist. That said, in five years, I think. My hunch would be January 6th is remembered as a searing at minimum as a searing shameful embarrassment for the country and for the right in general. And I think in 25 years, it will be, you know, it'll actually loom in some ways larger because it will by then be stripped of its partisan own the libs, own the cons kind of polarization stuff. And instead it'll be taught in some classes in grade school about this terrible thing that happened. And it'll be kind of like the bonus army kind of March and that kind of thing. And, um, but right now there are just too many people who are too invested in the idea that this thing shouldn't be used against them for, you know, Republicans to join in and actually describe the thing accurately, I think. And I, and I think just if I can say, David, to the question about its uh, salience in the midterm elections and the, uh, the quadrennial, uh, its salience is enormous. We just can't talk about it. It won't be in ads. Well, it'll be in a lot of Democratic ads. <laughs> Democrat, Democrat, Democrats are not going to shy away from rubbing people's noses in it. Uh, but it's, it's going, it is, it is, uh, the, it's the water we're swimming in, in a big way. And we just won't be able to see it in its right scope for another decade or so. Can I actually draw, I mean, uh, so I, I want to piece together two things Jonah said, and together I agree with them. One is that obviously events matter. Uh, oh, I and thought you were going to go with Columbo stuff. I was so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and two, that this will loom larger later. So let me give you an example of, uh, you know, John Brown's raid at Harper's Ferry. I think that if that in 1859 had just sort of been this one-off event and, you know, nothing much happened and we still had slavery today, I don't know that we would all remember John Brown's raid at Harper's Ferry or that we would have, you know, the phrase bleeding Kansas and things like that. The reason that John Brown's raid we all know so much about is because a year later we have a civil war and it was seen as this precursor event. I think events do matter as they unfold. I think January 6th will loom very large if that was a precursor event to bad things. I don't know if America just sort of goes back, the pendulum swings the other way, the populist moment starts waning. Um, Maybe it will be seen as the high point of the populist moment, maybe, but you know, I think you'll have to be in sort of college history books to be reading much about January 6th versus high school history books where I think you will need some event down the road. You you know, that's one thing that I think this both gives me, there's a way in which this gives me a tiny bit of optimism that people will move on in a way it gives me pessimism. And that is the, let's not talk about this cringe move on reaction from sort of your normal mainstream Republican, which indicates on the one hand, this sort of cringe, can we not talk about this? Let's move on indicates that's not what they want to be. They're not proud of it. But on the other hand, the refusal to hold people accountable 
to sort of lean into purging this says that the you know that the malignancy remains and so it's still there and the and the you know you still have this hardcore base and now there's this minor cottage industry of saying sort of the real crime isn't the protest at the capitol but the wave of arrests of the protesters of the capitol that's the real crime and so you do have something festering that is still there that is not being expelled by the people who are ashamed of it. They are ashamed of it. They don't want to talk about it, but they're not doing anything at all affirmatively to expel this element from the party. And that's what, that's why I think that, you know, the future's really up in the air on this. All right. Well, I'll hand it to Jonah. Although now I want to change my historical analogy to the, uh, Brooks Sumner affair where Preston Brooks beats Charles Sumner <laughs> with a cane. Cause that you learn about in high school history books. You definitely wouldn't learn about that, but for a civil war coming so shortly thereafter and the failure of uh, the 1850 compromise, et cetera. And we'll take a quick break to hear from Tax Network USA. Do you owe back taxes? Pandemic relief is now over. Along with hiring thousands of new agents and field officers, the IRS has kicked off 2024 by sending over 5 million pay-up letters to those who have unfiled tax returns or balances owed. Don't waive your rights and speak with them on your own. They are not your friends. Tax Network USA, a trusted tax relief firm, has saved over $1 billion in back taxes for their clients, and they can help you secure the best possible deal. Whether you owe 10 thousand dollars or 10 million, they can help you. Whether it's business or personal taxes, even if you have the means to pay or you are on a fixed income, they can help financially resolve your tax burdens once and for all. Call 1-800-245-6000 for a private free consultation or visit tnusa.com slash dispatch. Uh, all right, Jonah, your turn. Okay. So I, I will, I will, I will, I will I'll pull back the curtain a little bit. I'll break down the fourth wall as it were on this podcast and reveal that I came to my subject in part because I was away for the weekend. I completely tuned out politics, uh, except in over cocktails. And um, I get back and I finally plug basically back into Twitter and whatnot. And I encounter almost in, in rapid machine gun fire succession, a series of incandescently stupid things. I mean, just really just dumb Dumb things, not smart, different, you know, spell checkered an M&M factory dumb. And, <laughs> um, and it, 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 it vexed me. And I'll give you a couple examples. Um, Mike Lindell came out oh. and gave a statement saying that Trump, uh, that Joe Biden must resign. He must acknowledge he stole the election and resign without seeming to be aware that under our constitutional order, that would not make Trump president. It would make Kamala Harris president. And then maybe Harris would have to resign too, which would then make Nancy Pelosi president. At no point in the chain of command does, does, does Donald Trump get to be president in this scenario. But fine, Mike Lindell's fringe character, whatever. He gets a lot of airtime. Fine. Alan West, who is, uh, I believe, running for governor. Um, Accurate. And was a former congressman, former head of the Texas GOP, as head of the Texas GOP, said that Texas should consider secession, which is... Um, dumb. I'm just going to stipulate that. Uh, he said in an interview on Newsmax that in, in very serious tones, like very, very serious, like I am a scholar here tone, said that the basic truth is that the Texas tax code 
is is basic is fundamentally built on I'm not quoting but this is the gist of it is built upon the planks which I didn't know there were planks the planks of the communist manifesto mm. and um, because property taxes are bad for some reason blah 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 and you know uh, you could look it up property taxes existed before the communist manifesto um, last one was Kaylee McEnany on Fox saying that all of the um, all of the main, whatever that means, what all the main founding fathers opposed slavery <laughs> and knew it was evil. And I don't, I don't expect Kayleigh McEnany to know much of anything about anything, but my old friend Bill Bennett is sitting there nodding as she's talking about all of this. And it's sort of heartbreaking to me. And then you, I mean, you, we can go far and wide. We've all seen these examples. There seems the, in that video that the New York Times put out about the siege, you have the guy who was on January 6th, barricading the door, coming out saying this was no different than a tourist visit. So the question is, what is the source, what is the need to take fundamentally stupid positions or fundamentally uh, cockamamie positions um, to stand out from the crowd? What, what, it used to be that, you know, Pat Monahan, it wasn't that long ago, said the Republican Party was the party of ideas. And now it's, it seems to have gone a completely different way. And yes, there is stupidity on the Democratic side. Cory Bush says crazy things, yada, yada, yada. But what is the driver of this as a media messaging political strategy that rather than take a little more effort and make a smart point, it seems like people are determined to make dumb points. And I'll go with Sarah first because she thought this topic, I was kidding when I brought up <laughs> that this was going to be my topic. So uh, she gets first stab. That's not the first time this has happened. David uh, was talking about Adrian Vermeule's common good constitutionalism. And I said, no, David, you're missing it. This is sarcasm. <laughs> uh, I would say <laughs> and David that, was right. I think I was David right. might it have been right. Sarcasm. I just got yeah. my copy of the Harvard um, Journal of Law and Public Policy and the cover, like <laughs> the main article is common good constitutionalism. Why it's better or something. And I was like, oh, God. Um, so I actually think Jonah, that this is capitalism at work, intellectual capitalism of a form uh, on advisory opinions this week, David and I ran through some of the, uh, issues that came up in the last orders of the term. One of which was on defamation of public figures and that you have to show actual malice. And in Gorsuch's lengthy, hey, I wish we would take this at some point writing. He discusses how the incentives of the current media environment are pretty perverse. And that, you know, back when they came up with the actual malice standard in 1964, you had your three networks, you had a few, you know, major national newspapers. All of those newspapers had hundreds and hundreds of employees and fact checkers and editors. Um, and that now... There are good things that have come with the democratization of media and social media, no doubt. People's access to information is just wildly higher than it was before, and their access to give their stories is much uh, higher as well. However, uh, he cites, for instance, a study which shows that disinformation had advantage over truth in every category on at least one platform that shall not be named. Uh, it was disseminated wider. Yes. <laughs> uh, 
it was disseminated wider, faster, by more people, I mean, all of it, than the truth. And so the legal incentives for anyone publishing information because of the actual malice standard is that they are better off saying mistruths about public figures. And the business incentives are in fact to have fewer fact checkers, fewer editors, because the more sensationalist information does better, gets more clicks, sees more eyeballs, moves faster, and gets your story around. All right, so how does this apply to what we're talking about? Jonah, their incentives are to do exactly this. What are we talking about right now? The things that they said they were wrong. Uh, I remember being on the Carly campaign and us just never getting any traction in the media, in polling, et cetera. And looking back, I'm not saying this is the only reason, but I was having this conversation with a fellow uh, Carly alum. I did a huge disservice to my candidate. I proofread everything, literally every single thing before it left our campaign. Every press release, every speech, every op-ed, every fundraising appeal to check for typos, grammar, all of that. And the result was, you know, we had a sort of perfect, we never said something that wasn't footnoted in a speech. There were never grammatical errors to mock. And the result was nobody paid any attention to anything we said or did. The Trump campaign put out things that like, you know, the capitalization, the punctuation in random places, misspelling literally everyone's name they ever referenced. And every single time it got attention. And so what have people learned from that? to say that the majority of the founders were against slavery because now there's a whole conversation about just how many of the founders were against slavery and her statement got her attention. And that's intellectual capitalism and the perverse current incentives that we have. The end. I have thoughts, but I want to keep the ball rolling. Um, uh, Let's assume that Sarah has got a point here, which is always (laughs) a safe assumption, Um, or almost always a safe assumption. Uh, Chris? Can we blame the people, right? Because if her point is, it's the marketplace, well, the marketplace is driven by the consumers. So do the people want the stupid? I mean, I'll give you another example. Uh, over at American Thinker, uh, they had a very long piece, yes. which, had, which had charts, charts yes. and, and tables, demonstrating apparently that Joe Biden, in fact, lost California, a lost state California, <laughs> which he won by about 30 <laughs> points. And, um, oh, you, so and you picture a guy with filthy fingernails sitting at his keyboard, <laughs> clacking away, <laughs> writing this thing. And it's all based on random number generation software, blah, 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 blah. And how you can tell that the, the digits were played. You're like, whatever you're smoking, you need to either smoke more of it or you need to smoke less of it. I love that piece. That was truly great. <laughs> okay. So, but there's a, clearly a market for this stuff. And I understand a site like American Thinker, which depends which does not have, it's not a first order site. It needs traffic. It needs to, to come up with garbage stuff that, that you know, like get the gateway pundit model writ small. But like, it, what, you know, why would leading Republicans, you know, why Josh Mandel, all of these people, do people actually want this stuff or is it purely a media messaging play to get attention? Well, if they were smart enough to be stupid on purpose, they wouldn't be stupid. Uh, <laughs> but they're stupid. And uh, here's the thing, you know, you mentioned Bill Bennett. So there's an example of a guy who we know was smart and then changed, right? And what changed, how it changed, whatever. But so you, you, so there are some people who you know are smart people who are going along with things that are not. 
And so that is certainly a subcategory and there are market pressures there and there's other stuff for sure. But here's the thing. Conservative populism is cultural populism, right? Uh, It's George Wallace and uh, George Wallace used to talk about uh, pointy headed intellectuals that couldn't even park a bicycle straight and they are looking down their noses at you. So there is a strong current, not necessarily of conservatism, but in the American right uh, on the on the culture war populist side that has total contempt for credential, total contempt for capacity, total contempt for uh, intellect or, or intellectualism anyway. And when you get a, a political movement that is basically arranged around the idea that the experts are always wrong uh, and it's stupid to be smart, and that celebrates the enthusiastic ignorance of Donald Trump and many of his supporters, right? Uh, They feel things they don't know things. It's very romantic. It's very emotional. Uh, And those, that set of desires punishes people who are thoughtful, punishes people who are learned, punishes people who are trying to be trying to be a thorough in their investigation of questions. And it rewards people who just say stuff, right? Because one of the things, by the way, that voters liked about Donald Trump was he tells it like it is, which he didn't. But what they meant was, then in poll after poll, what are you, Trump, one of his high attributes tells it like it is. And what they mean is he just says stuff. He doesn't seem like he's being thoughtful or he doesn't seem like he's, uh, as John Kerry would say, nuanced. Uh, and... What has basically happened is the uh, George Wallace wing of the Republican Party has is driving the bus, and we ought not be surprised that as it's driving the bus, it keeps slamming into walls, abutments, uh, guardrails, and uh, crossing guards. Okay, so David, Chris has just laid out a case that it pays, um, it pays to to draw in bright crayons outside the lines. And that people who uh, use uh, nuance and subtlety of shade uh, within the lines get punished for it. Now, we are finishing a long week. We just got out of a long weekend where you have been punished for precisely that for (laughs) several days now. Um, I've lost track about which one of your someone said that you were demonic. Was that a joke or was that I can't remember. Possessed. Possessed. Okay, possessed. Yeah. Okay. And to be fair, only possibly possessed. So this person has an open mind, is open to persuasion that I might not be possessed. So, you know, we need to be accurate. And then folks <laughs> at another semi fringe site uh, made the also clever Vichy French pun, which, you know, it's like Vichy French jokes to me are only slightly less original, unoriginal than jokes that play on the name Jonah, which I. I exhausted hearing all of the various versions of Jonah and the Whale jokes in like third grade. Um, but uh, so if David got exhausted from Vichy French jokes in the third grade, though, I will be impressed. Yes, that would be impressive. That would <laughs> that, be really impressive. That did not occur. <laughs> <laughs> Those are some real mean girls in third grade. <laughs> <laughs> that said, so uh, David, the the thing that's interesting about a lot of the attacks on you is that they they still cling to the form of being cerebral, of being clever, of being nuanced. And the fact is that most of them, 
you know, I mean, people can disagree with you. I have my disagreements with you, but like most of the disagreements that invoke demonic possession or or <laughs> uh, Vichy France are in fact, at the end of the day, remarkably dumb. They've just, they've used some gold leaf to gussy them up. So uh, where do you come down on this? Well, I mean, one thing I think that is absolutely clear is that there is a deliberate exploitation of public ignorance combined with a, an enormous amount of, of carelessness and ignorance on the part of people who have platforms of various sizes. So, you know, let's just take, for example, this little thing that was written in the American mind, Vichy French. One of the things that I've argued in context of critical race theory is that there are there are legal remedies that exist under the law already, um, namely under Title VI and Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 that protect people um, on the from discrimination and harassment on the basis of race. And they have been used by people of all races to protect themselves from discrimination on the basis of race. And so in this one area where I'm being compared called Vichy, there is this declaration, has anyone ever, has a white person ever won a case on titles, you know, on Civil Rights Act? Well, you know, Sarah's already looking like, what? <laughs> yes, yes, in fact. I mean, this is a longstanding precedent that it protects people of all races. And yes, white people have won cases under um, the Civil Rights Act. But A, this person probably has no idea of that. And B, has no curiosity to determine whether or not what she's saying is accurate. Let me and Google C, that for you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And C, knows that the audience, which is thirsty for David French's Vichy content, will applaud this owning of me that's based in fundamental falsehood. Like, it's just completely... Uh, the 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 question she asks has an answer, and it is not the answer that she seeks. Um, but yeah, there's an inlet. The, what is happening is we have an awful lot of people who are responding to. Um, if you let let let's look at your examples, Jonah. Okay. Um, Marxism and property taxes. Do we expect average Americans to know much about Marxism? No. No, they, your average American doesn't know much about Marxism. They know it's bad. It's really bad. Well, in fairness, Marx did believe in property taxes, really confiscatory <laughs> property yeah, taxes. Yeah, very confiscatory <laughs> property taxes. Does the average person know about the, uh, Marxism? No, but they know it's bad. So you're going to be able to exploit public ignorance, okay, by saying, I'm tying this to Marxism. Well, let's look at Kaylee McEnany and the Founding Fathers. Honestly, do many people know how many founding fathers owned slaves? Not really many people, but they know that the 1619 Project is wrong. And so, therefore, they're going to be very receptive to any information that proves, proves, in air quotes, that, that you know, the founders were better than critics say they were. So time and again, or Mike Lindell, I have information that Donald Trump actually won. Do people know the ins and outs of these election disputes? No, but they know what they want to be true. They know what they want to be true. So time and time and time again, what people are doing is deliberately exploiting public ignorance. And then the idea of calling them to account 
calling people you to account or calling someone to account for that becomes elitism. So you're exploiting public ignorance. And then when you call people to account for it, it's elitism. I'm old enough to remember when people thought maybe that Gerald Ford, um, now I'm, I'm displaying my, my absolute age here as the oldest <laughs> dispatcher. <laughs> When people thought Gerald Ford might have lost the election in part because he inaccurately said that Poland wasn't part of, wasn't under Soviet domination and during the Cold War. And that, that that geopolitical mistake or that misstatement that Gerald Ford made really cost him. And now we're in a world where, you know, that kind of nuance what won't even make, who cares? And and it is, and that's one of the things that I think is making me very worried about the future of our country is that we we now have a political class that strategically, intentionally, relentlessly doesn't just exploit civic ignorance, it fosters it and it cultivates it and it nurtures it for its own gain. That being said, so two things. One, this pod has so far felt quite a bit just like an airing of grievances for us for 40 minutes or whatever it's been. But also, uh, this is happening. What's your point? This is happening. (laughs) David literally looked confused. He was like, and, (laughs) this is happening very much on the left. I think we could spend 40 minutes talking about, because, because of what I think my point, which Jonah so graciously said might exist. Um, (laughs) which is the incentive structure is the exact same no matter what side you're on, uh, disinformation or incorrect information that people can point out as incorrect on one side, defend on the other side. That is not a partisan incentive. Uh, And so when we talk about, we're picking on the right, but again, I just want to point out, we could absolutely do this exact same thing on the left, but let's stay on the right. But I have an example real fast of that, Sarah. Yes. (laughs) Just to make it concrete, did y'all see the meme that was floating all around Twitter that when the Gulf of Mexico was on fire, it was because of capitalism? Yeah. And yeah. it turns out it was the state-owned, you know, Mexico's state-owned energy company. It wasn't capitalism. But that didn't stop that from flying all over the place, just as an example, Sarah. There was another okay, one that sorry. blamed COVID on capitalism, a disease that, you know, escaped a communist country's state-owned lab. But anyway, I, I take your point. Yeah, go. And don't forget that Joe Biden said that at the founding, the Second Amendment prevented people from owning cannons, which it just did not. Uh, Okay. So Chris and I are doing a four-part series on 2024 for The Sweep. We are? Started this week. Yeah. I didn't actually tell Chris about the other three parts yet, but they're coming. (laughs) So we're running through all the potential candidates, strengths and weaknesses. This week we started with the senators, but there is something interesting percolating out there between Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and Donald Trump. So this week, Donald Trump spoke in Florida and Ron DeSantis was not there. Those are the facts as we know them. Now here are some things that are out there. Trump says he told DeSantis not to come. Uh, DeSantis says that he wanted to stay in Surfside where the building collapsed. Uh, they are still recovering bodies there at this point. Uh, I believe that the count is up to 39 bodies recovered. Also, Donald Trump didn't mention Florida governor, Ron DeSantis in his speech in Florida, not once didn't come up. And perhaps 
people are speculating. That's because in a recent straw poll in Colorado at the Western Conservative Summit, um, Ron DeSantis beat Donald Trump for who should be the 2024 nominee. Now, let me tell you a little bit about this poll. As you know, polling, right? This is my- It's not a poll. It's not a poll. It's not a poll. So this is uh, a an online, like, if you want to do it non-scientific, feel free to, you know, click on some things here. So A, not scientific. B, it's an approval poll, which is interesting. So you're actually only picking multiple candidates, but anyone you would approve of being uh, the nominee. And in that fashion, DeSantis got 74.1%. Trump got 71%. Ted Cruz got 43. Mike Pompeo got 39. Tim Scott got 35. Uh, You get the point. I do want to run through some of the previous winners. Herman Cain, 2011. Marco Rubio, 2012. Ted Cruz, 2013. Ben Carson won back-to-back in 2014 and 2015. And in the 2016 poll, they asked who should be the Veep nominee for Trump and Newt Gingrich won. So this poll has <laughs> just an amazing track record. Uh, but word has it that it has annoyed Donald Trump that DeSantis is beating him, even if he runs in a non-scientific poll that has never predicted the winner ever, ever. So my question to you, Jonah. How should Ron DeSantis Maneuver. He has re-election in 2022. Presumably he does want to run for president. What do you do with Donald Trump hanging out there as both a promise and a threat? Yeah, look, I mean, I think it's a great, great question because if you were going to be a betting person and you just wanted to take the field, right, and say every single person who gets close to Trump eventually pays a political price for it, you would win, you know, what, a, like a 26-bet parlay. Because to date, every elected official who got in too close to Trump eventually pays, and, and or just prominent, you know, official, has paid a price for it. Um, just ask Bill Barr or Bob Barr. Bill Barr. I have this problem with the bar. Probably both. Probably yeah, both. Probably both. Um, I mean, part of my fantasy is that... Uh, the Republicans take back the House and Trump immediately endorses Jim Jordan for speaker um, just to punish Kevin McCarthy. And um, so I think there's... Don't forget that Donald Trump himself can be the speaker. You do not have to be a member of the House. I <laughs> I, I, I know that. And there are people... Uh, you're doing this as a fun-triggering parlor game, but there are, there no. are serious people who <laughs> actually want him to be speaker. And I think yeah. it is incredible. I think there is a real chance of it. No, I don't. Not like a 50% chance. I think there is a 15% chance that Donald Trump is the next Speaker of the House. Do you? Really? I don't. I don't. Because someone will explain to them that he will actually have to, like, understand parliamentary procedure. (laughs) No. No, Um, he doesn't doesn't want to be Speaker of the House. No. Um, Yep. 15%. Look, I'm sure Louis Gohmert tries to nominate him. Um, I'm sure Paul Gosar will take the pillowcase off his head long enough to vote I, but, um, uh, anyway, um, uh, I think the smartest thing that, that DeSantis can do, cause it's a real problem and he's got to be aware of it, that Trump cannot handle the idea of the limelight being taken from him, um, is to be as, 
to basically be governor pothole for a little while. And to the extent he embraces the national media, which he has to do a little bit to hold on to his lead, to be purely a media critic and chief guy and pick his battles. And like that 60 minutes thing, I think it was you who said it was like a $10 million in kind contribution to his campaign. Um, but other than that, I, I, it's very difficult to see how, if he stays popular, Trump doesn't eventually punish him for it. He'll lay down various tests to see if he's loyal. And eventually one of these tests will be one he can't meet. And then the response will be, you must hate Trump as Barr learned. So, um, I don't have a great answer for it other than to stay like incredibly focused on the needs of his state. Cause if he gets reelected, he'll be in better position regardless to run. And, and other than that, just don't poke the bear is would be my sort of answer. Uh, Chris, what are your thoughts on how, I mean, yes, it's still 2021. We're 18 months, even from the midterms. But how do you see 2024 shaking out for all of these GOP candidates? What's the referendum here? Well, I wish I would have I wish I would have known about the four part series before I wrote what I wrote for the sweep. And now I feel bad for for attacking the premise of field picking. Um, (laughs) I did not know. Um, So it sort of goes like this. Um, The most important actor in the 2024 election is Joe Biden. And it's not even close, right? It's not like Donald Trump is a close second to Joe Biden. What Biden's, let's start with this understanding that it is extremely, extraordinarily hard to beat an incumbent president. It's only happened three times in the modern era has a person won a first term uh, and, and failed to win a second that they tried. And it's just it Carter, H.W. Uh, Bush and Trump. And you need a real special set of circumstances for that to come into place. If Joe Biden, who is pretty popular uh, and as a matter of fact, he's losing some ground among Democrats, but gaining some ground among independents and even some light Republican leaners. Um, it, so the big the big tests for Biden are all still ahead. And I don't think that his approval numbers will look like this uh, in November or in, let's say, the presidential election starts 30 seconds after the polls close for midterms, right? So in November of 2022, the presidential election begins. I think it is unlikely that Joe Biden will be as popular as he is now, or I think it's more likely than not that he will um, not be this popular. I don't know if I'm at a quadruple negative there. But I don't think Biden will be this well off at this point after 2022. He may be way worse off. He may be better off. But if he were here, you would see the Republican field basically collapse. And you would see very few people. If you're Ron DeSantis, you say, okay, am I really going to run for president? Right? Uh, you're the governor of Florida. And you're young. You don't have to run for president. And if Joe Biden's rocking a 52% approval rating and looks like a lock for re-election, you're not going to go run. Uh, this is what happened in 92. Mario Cuomo and other big-name Democrats opted out because George H.W. Bush was going to be undefeatable. The hero of Operation Desert Storm was not going to be defeated. And that's why a, a 
I won't call him a marginal candidate, but a, a longer shot candidate like a moderate Democrat from Arkansas was able to get in and run because he was facing Paul Songus instead of the biggest names in the field. They were called um, the Seven Doors, remember? Totally. Yeah. And uh, because I was cool in high school. Uh, so the the truth is the Republicans are all thinking about Trump, 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 Trump. It's, it's an exhausting, tedious affair. What I know about Donald Trump is he's pretty old, he's definitely lazy, and he is totally unwilling to risk his own reputation and pride. He, the, my joke uh, in the sweep was uh, the, uh, the, it was uh, Frederick Douglass who said, uh, uh, one, what is it, um, being right makes a majority or something. Uh, and uh, Donald Trump's version of that is, we'll see what happens. So I think for a lot of this stuff, you could, you could fake yourself out if you're Ron DeSantis or a bunch of other people. You could fake yourself out thinking about Trump. I think Pence is doing a pretty good job. I think So I, th- I would say also in the category with um, DeSantis is Nikki Haley, who has twisted herself into 17 Bavarian pretzels trying to hit what the right tone for and against Trump and all this stuff. I think if you're, if you're serious about running in 2024, uh, go do it. Uh, go run. Don't think about Trump too much. Don't think about that other stuff. Because what's really going to be determinative here is what is the overall political climate going to be like? And that's going to depend on how Joe Biden's doing more than anything else. David, do you think any of these guys run if Trump jumps in the ring? <laughs> that's a great question. I think he, by and large, clears the field if he jumps in. I think he. What about Pence? Uh, I don't. <laughs> well, and doesn't it depend? Like, I, I, I don't. This assumes right that he's as he is as popular among Republicans uh, two years hence as he is today. Well, I, you know, it's going to be hard to predict the. It's going to be very hard to predict the the political lay of the land. I think that the perhaps the best case for him in many ways is that if the if the Republicans do retake the House. And uh, essentially what what, you know, looks like, a, you know, uh, Chris, your outstanding hangover series of a party that lost its majority faster than any other party in 70 years. If the sort of the Trump side of the House says, wait a minute, it was a blip. It was a blip. It was this two years between 2020 and 2022 that's all heavily influenced by the pandemic and the stolen election. And we're already returning our sort of our rightful populist power. Um, if Trump works at it even a little bit, he, I think, would find himself in a pretty good position. Um, if the Republicans are still in a free fall uh, after 2022, I, I don't know. I don't know. But, uh, you know, based on the based on the fear that he still strikes in the heart of your typical average Republican office holder and the total unwillingness that they have to take him on, the total unwillingness. I'm going to need evidence that that changes before I'm going to say somebody's going to step up to the plate that's very serious, that's got a real constituency and can go toe-to-toe with him in a, in a primary campaign. 
I got to see the evidence of that before I'm going to say that that's something that's likely to happen. All right. Last topic, Chris, it's all yours. Um, you know, we've talked here a lot about how seriously Republicans take January 6th, how seriously they take any of this stuff. What I want to know is how seriously do Democrats take the quite real threat to the continued good order of the republic? And what brought this to mind for me, and I wrote about this uh, in my column for Monday, what brought this to mind for me was watching the asinine incapacity and boobishness of the uh, New York City um, Board of Elections in conducting their mayoral election. Congratulations to Eric Adams, uh, the the next mayor, probably, unless, unless Curtis Slewa of the Guardian Angels and uh, owner of 15 rescue cats <laughs> uh, uh, pull, pulls off uh, the upset of the century in November. Um, but if you, if you understood, I, I should start with the premise. I believe that the possibility that we will see the discontinuity in the American Republic is very real. And that the real point of January 6th is that we may, we may soon lose. And, you know, we talk a lot about 2022. If the Republicans take back Congress, and then Joe Biden or a, another Democrat wins the presidential election in 2024, is it a real possibility that, especially thanks to election laws that are being passed uh, in states that make it easier for politicians to interfere with the conduct of elections, is it possible we have a no, uh, a no verdict, that we, have a, that we have a deadlocked Congress that cannot execute its basic functions, and that we, and we see the disruption of the republic? Yes. It's possible. It is a thing that could happen. And it's not like a, it, I don't, I don't want to put a percentage on it. Sarah, Sarah was risky to say her 15%. Uh, but it, it's, let's just say it's a non-zero thing. And quite frankly, it is the matter of greatest concern to me in American public life right now. Our greatest inheritance is our peaceful transference of power. The French have had five republics in the time that we've had one. Uh, we made it through a civil war. We made it through pandemics. We made it through depressions. We made it through all that stuff. And we might throw it away because we're high on our own toots. So anyway, as I watched the incapacity of the New York Democrats and Republicans too, but just as I watched the incapacity of administering that election, and then you look around the country and you see whether it's in the For the People Act or whatever else, effort after effort by Democrats to make elections longer more complicated and less decisive. I sat in a decision desk room for a week, uh, sleeping three hours and working in shifts to call the 2020 presidential election. And as Jonah, as you said, it's it was a pandemic and you're like, okay, weird stuff is going to happen. As Democrats look to make permanent these changes and more mail-in balloting and in California, it's 17 days. You have 17 days for for uh, ballots to be counted. Other states, it's two weeks. I think Illinois is two weeks. Uh, many states have 10 days. We need decisive, clean elections in order to stand up to scoundrels like Donald Trump who want to steal elections. If you want to not have elections stolen, you must have clear deadlines. You must have decisive results and they must happen quickly. And so my question, and I'll start with you, Sarah, is 
do you think how how cynical versus sincere do you see the Democrats on the question of uh, saving the republic, et cetera, et cetera? Does their effort to make elections more complicated cast doubt on their sincerity? So a lot of things cast doubt on their sincerity. I think the sincerity is closing in on zero for the people in leadership. I think there are absolutely people uh, at all sorts of other levels who 100% believe what they are saying and truly believe that they are on the side of the angels trying to make voting easier and uh, all of that. However, the way that I know that it is insincere overall is because no one has proposed to simply say, fine, (laughs) Jonah, you know where I'm going. (laughs) I'm going to take all 87 recommendations of the 2005 Carter-Baker Commission. We are going to have secure elections, and we're going to have open, fair, and easy-to-vote elections. And I'm going to do it in a bipartisan way, you know, that at this point is old enough that, like, there's no sort of feelings involved anymore. We're not going to have ballot harvesting. We're going to have precinct voting. But we're also going to have, you know, just much, much easier voting mechanisms. That would be an organization that I think, you know, or an elected person, whatever, who I think is sincere about making voting easier because they're willing to say part of making voting easier is also making it more secure because the whole point of voting is that we have to have confidence in the results. Um, The New York Board of Elections debacle is such a joke, but it's a serious joke because nothing's going to change. There are no Democrats, national Democrats, even New York Democrats really coming out and saying, we have to overhaul the board of elections top to bottom. Look, yes, ranked choice voting uh, was always going to delay the results because they allowed absentee ballots to come in for so long after. But the truth is what undermined confidence in the results is the incompetence of the board of elections matched with the fact that then, uh, you know, this this whole ranked choice voting thing did mean that it would take longer. So then when the it Board of Elections... It wasn't ranked choice voting. It took New York six weeks to count the results of the 2020 yes. House results. Exactly. Maine does ranked choice voting with more votes than were cast in New York City, and they do it, and they, and they do it uh, right off the bat. This is, this is nincompoopery, uh, not complexity. Yes. Um, but that's... It's going to be a more complicated story moving forward for them because they're going to have to separate the two. And are they willing to call out these, you know, cousins, nephews, et cetera, of powerful Democrats to say that they are the nincompoops who must go? Um, Because if they aren't willing to say that, then it is going to fall more on ranked choice voting. And I, I think you're exactly, your point is exactly right, that all of this mess undermines the Democrats' overall narrative that we don't need to secure elections, we just need to make it a lot easier to vote. Well, if you can just include all of the test ballots and forget to delete them, release results when you're missing 120,000 ballots, include 135,000 of the test ballots instead, and then when one of the candidates questions it, everyone attacks him for hours until it turns out he's right, yeah, I think that wildly undermines their messaging on this. David? decisive elections. We remember a time in America where it really was election night, right? And not election month. Um, how do you see, and I, I know that because of my profession, uh, because of my vocation, 
I uh, have stronger feelings about uh, election counting than other people do. But I see this as a real problem. I see the 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 proverbial dangling Chad uh, hanging out there as a big problem. Am I right? Oh, you're 100 percent right. And I am absolutely kicking myself for a failure of imagination because I you know, I wrote a book about the potential that America could break apart. And one of the, and I had these scenarios of how it could possibly happen to sort of make it concrete to people. It didn't cross my mind (laughs) that one way this thing could happen is somebody just flat out exploits uncertainty around election outcomes and popular distrust and slow counting to just say, I won, I won. And, and when they didn't win, and what would that do to the republic? And and the the fact of the matter is, every single botched election, combined with some of all of the other trends that we've talked about today, where you're exploiting public ignorance, you're exploiting public distrust, you're whipping up um, fr- friends, people into a frenzy and a fervor like we saw on January 6th, it seems to me that one of our top priorities to just, not just feel good about ourselves on election night, but to actually preserve the Republic is a clean, decisive, solid, prompt election count. I mean, we're just fortunate that right now that our elections don't turn on California because in more ways than one brother, (laughs) my goodness, how long it takes them to count votes. I mean, my goodness. And then there's this whole other thing though. There's this other interesting aspect of this. It's not just elections that smart progressives are now saying, wait a minute, if we can't even count in these dark, these deep blue areas, if we can't even count votes competently, what's that doing for us, sort of our progressive enterprise that's saying, oh, hey, here's the, you know, our all encompassing government program is going to make your life better. And I'm, I'm reminded by, I'm reminded of uh, Ezra Klein's really smart piece from February that's entitled California is making liberals squirm. If progressivism can't work there, why should the country believe it can work anywhere else? And so this is of a piece, not just of the election crisis, which is Republic threatening at its edges. This is also a government confidence crisis, which that's already scraping the bottom of the barrel. But everyone who has a program about making America better through the awesome power of government needs to focus in on this stuff and say, you know, if we can't even count votes, how good at we are at how, how good are we at other stuff? Uh, Jonah Goldberg, because you look tan and I resent you for it. Uh, <laughs> I will, I will, I will, I will give you this question. How do you begin to fashion some bipartisan consensus around this point? about elections because we have such demagogic absurdity on both sides. Uh, Jim Crow 2.0, uh, uh, say many Democrats about fairly, you know, the air, the recent Supreme court decisions on Arizona as typical that is that it, it is, it is racist, uh, to forbid ballot harvesting uh, is the preposterous uh, assertion that the DNC made there. But uh, so Jim Crow 2.0 versus uh, stop the steal. Where is how do you start to put together some sort of bipartisan uh, coalition on this? Or am I should I give up? 
Oh, you should probably give up. I mean, um, <laughs> but stipulated. Um, yeah, I was gonna, I was gonna bring up the you know reaction to the Supreme Court cases, which is you know a good case in point. I mean, Sarah rightly chastised us for the first third of half, whatever the turns out, this overly long podcast being of being an airing of grievances about our own side. But it's worth pointing out that like. I listened really carefully to how, say, the New York Times and NPR covered those Supreme Court cases about, uh, you know, Brnovich, whatever the thing was called. And, um, you know, in the in the NPR vision of this, this was a sustained, essentially white supremacist attack on the Voting Rights Act. And, you know, nowhere in this is there any in that coverage. Was there any mention that like the last last person to really violate ballot harvesting laws was that North Carolina Republican nine and C nine. And every, I, mean, I wish I, I mean, I've had time if I cared about that enough, you just go back and look at what all the Democrats said about how terrible ballot harvesting was when Republicans did it. And it's bad, you know? And I think part of the reason why you should just give up all hope and just <laughs> start day drinking is uh, to use it as an analogy, you know, the, the fight over critical race theory stuff, which we're not going to open that whole can of worms, but for, you know, for months now, a lot of elite liberals have been telling us, you idiot right-wingers, no one's teaching this. It's not a thing unless you're going to Harvard Law School. You know, no one wants to teach this. Um, you know, this is a moral panic, McCarthyism, yada, 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 yada. And as, as, as I think misplaced a lot of that stuff was, that was the message. And then, you know, in the last, what, 72 hours, America's teachers unions have forthrightly come forward and said, we are going to teach this and cram it down your kids' throats. And so you have this problem where all that all you need for one side to be against something is for the other side to be for it. Preach. And, and if one side proposes utterly reasonable, you know, like light another candle on Sarah's shrine to the Baker commission of 19 of 2005, seven, whatever, um, uh, you know, she can cut out more teen beat bods and put Jim Baker's face on them, um, ah! you know, on the poster. Uh, the second someone on the right proposes this stuff, it's a huge problem. And so I, I, I kind of, I hate gangs and I don't mean Crips and Bloods. I mean like gangs of eight, gangs of 10, whatever. But it seems to me that the only way you get there is to have someone like a, a coalition of Joe Manchin types propose it for the Democratic Party. And a coalition of Mitt Romney types propose it for the Republican Party. And then you figure out some sort of centrist thing that drags a plurality of the other parties along for the ride. And it would have to be so unbelievably non-ideological that no one could cling to some bogus complaint about it. And that just that seems like a really hard effort going into 2022. Never mind 2024. Never mind the fact that we're going to be sucked into the hellmouth by 2028. <laughs> <laughs> and with that, you know, while we've been on this podcast, uh, former President Trump has been holding a press conference announcing his class action lawsuit against Facebook, Twitter, and we're told that uh, YouTube will be added at some point. I, for one, am looking forward to the deposition transcripts. David? <laughs> it Will it make it to deposition, Sarah? Because he's claiming a violation of the First Amendment by I Facebook know, and Twitter. I know. This will get tossed out on failure to state a claim upon which relief can be granted. Ah, well. 
Um, Thank you all for joining the pod this week. It was an airing of grievances, but it felt good. It felt real good. 